0: Well, I was uh, born in uh, Arizona, and then I grew up in Southern California. My mom and my biological father divorced when I was one, so I didn't really meet him. I knew of him because my sister had memories of him. But yeah, I didn't really, like, I don't remember my parents being married. And my stepdad was there when I was so young that he was just my dad. But my sister, being a little bit older, was very resistant to, to calling him dad. And I think that that had a little bit of effect on me growing up. And I had a relationship with my biological dad's parents. So he was talked about. And then around the time that I met my biological father, uh, my mom and stepdad had uh, a son together. I remember being scared to go visit him because he was just like this man and um, my sister was really excited and I remember only feeling comfortable because my grandma was there. He was just kind of like this dude that would show up every now and then and he would like take us to Disneyland or do something really random like that and then I wouldn't hear from him for months. We had court ordered visits with him you know ever since I was younger because my mom was trying to get child support for him, so we had to see him. He was probably in my life, um, in and out of my life, from ages five to twelve or thirteen. And um, he met a woman when I was thirteen and my sister was seventeen. They started dating and they just, they got married and didn't even he didn't even tell us. And it was just one day my aunt was talking to my mom my dad's aunt and uh she just like let it slip (laughs) it was something that they were all actively like trying to hide from us he stopped paying child support he stopped coming to see us i just think that he just didn't want to be a dad and he found an out for it and we weren't really too happy with him anyways like my sister she thought he could do no wrong for the longest time, around the time that she was 16 or 17. I think she started to to feel that too, was that he didn't care about us, and um, he wasn't a good father. And so, I mean, I think it was easier for him to to let all that go. I wasn't allowed to do anything when I lived at home. My most, like, social outings half the time were either going to church every Sunday and going to the youth group there, which I didn't want to be in. Or I would sneak out to hang out with my friends. I was just not allowed to do anything. I was questioning at a really young age, and I attributed that a lot to my biological father because I knew that he was an atheist. And I... You know, equated that in my head of well, maybe if he was a Christian, then he would want to have a relationship with me, and so a lot of the prayers that I had when I would pray at night and that's something we all had to do would be um wishing that my biological father would find God and then um have a relationship with me and I just over time was kind of like nothing's happening and I didn't feel connected to God, and I felt like everybody around me was talking about how God would talk to them, and they would see Him and everything, and feel Him and everything. And I just didn't have that experience, and so I started to stray away from it. And probably around the time that I was twelve, I I didn't want to go to church, and I'd find myself like uh, getting into you know debates or arguments with my parents, and them not really being able to answer my questions and yeah, I mean, from there, I just, I, I had, I wanted nothing to do with it. But there was always, like, a lingering fear in the back of my head, just, like, that fear that if I do something wrong, I'm going to burn in hell. I'm half Mexican. My mom is Mexican, and my dad is Irish. And uh, growing up, I was the, um, like, one of the only Mexican kids in my school. And so that was something that I think I, like, really started to notice, and people would... Make comments about my mom, and, and they call her like, ethnic slurs, things like that. And I um, felt very like drawn to other like Mexican students and students of color when I was younger. But I had a lot of like behavioral issues, and I was constantly getting in trouble for for talking, or not paying attention in class, or getting sassy with the teacher, issues on the playground with other students. I mean, I I had friends. I always had, like, at least, like, a couple close friends. But I was not, like, the cool kid or the popular kid or the one that everybody liked and wanted to hang out with. I think I struggled, like, a little bit with bullying around that time. Um, But it was just kind of mainly being, like, a little bit of a chubbier kid growing up. I was a little bit more off. (laughs) Um, I, like, played in the dirt and collected ladybugs. And um, I had brothers growing up, so I always like wanted to like play with the boys, and I wasn't allowed to. You know, you start like growing up and hitting puberty a little bit. I felt like things started to change for me in the way that I was becoming more of somebody that people kind of wanted to be friends with, but it wasn't something that I really understood. I just like wanted to be a teenager, and I wanted to party with my friends. I just ve- I would very much like wanted to, just like be on drugs every day, and it's like I tried it once, and it's like, oh, I want to do this all the time. And I'm really thankful that I did not get that chance or opportunity to do it all the time. But I think I was just like looking for something. Chaotic, you know, when you're just kind of like trying to fill the void with something. So it did turn into a toxic thing, but it was kind of just like throughout high school. I think it could have been a lot worse. My parents intervened a lot. I think it was ecstasy. I tried ecstasy and my mom found out. At first, they were taking me to pastors and they were basically telling my mom I had the devil in my heart and I was struggling with demons and the pastors were basically describing you know what I was dealing with at that time, which is what I now know is diagnosed bipolar 2. I didn't get diagnosed until I was 24. So in um, March of 2020, right before we went into lockdown, I got my diagnosis. I mean, I definitely had my own ideas about it, so much so that I was genuinely upset when I was diagnosed because I just didn't want to be. And the more I think about it, it was like, yeah, maybe it, maybe it's stereotypical that I had, like, you know, I would get angry or I would do drugs. I thought I was doing those things because I was doing drugs, not because I maybe had a uh, mood disorder that was causing me to do those things. Many years before that, you know, I was getting diagnosed with things that, you know, just different thing every single time I talked to, like, a different psychologist and just constantly getting misdiagnosed with things. And that was the first time that it actually felt, like, right. And I I just, I kind of had, like, a an answer for for all of that because I always thought that there was no way that how I was feeling and acting was just, like, me being a moody teenager. And that's what a lot of people were talking it up to be. I've been piecing it together for the last two years. Like, once I was diagnosed, I it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh, that's, like, what that was. And I had noticed that it was starting to, I don't know, I don't want to say get worse, but I more noticeable. Like, I was noticing that my moods were just switching more around the time that I was, like, 22 and it was not something like when I was in high school I would be fine for like let's say like most of a month and then there would just be one day where I would like I'd snap and I would have this episode and it was you know like a manic episode where I would be like aggressive with my family I would be like crying or I would I would self-harm uh, I would run away I would get into trouble like I would do, like, you know, the kind of like the more stereotypical reckless things that is associated with bipolar disorder. But as I got older, I stopped harming myself, first of all. So I found different, like, avenues for coping with that, like, constant mood change. To me, it looked, like, productive. Like, I would stay up all night writing things or write like three different songs and like none of them made sense but I would like write them all like really really fast or I'd be talking to people like not even being able to you know keep up with my own brain and I would start to notice that I would like have those moments of just like feeling like oh I feel so good today and I'm I'm just I'm up here I you know like I would like want to like, climb a mountain or get in a fight. Like, it was just, like, this constant energy. And then I would have those periods where I couldn't even get out of my bed. And once that became, like, more noticeable of that, like, like, why do I, why do I switch off like that? Or, like, why does it seem like things are so great one week and the next, like, they're terrible? When I was diagnosed, he told me that that's called rapid cycling. And that's something that's kind of harder to diagnose I always thought that being bipolar was just, like, you can flip, like, a light switch, you know, and it's not, like, so much a cyclical kind of thing. And it's less of, like, you go on, like, a shopping spree and, um, you you know, you're promiscuous or you do drugs or, you know, like that. Like, you kind of just, it's a little bit, a little bit different. And I guess the rapid cycling is something that's a little bit more rare at, like, the frequency at which I have it. You don't really notice it sometimes, you know? Like, I don't really notice when I'm, like, in a manic mood sometimes. Sometimes when I'm just in a good mood, I I almost question, like, is this mania? Like, am I just feeling like I'm on top of the world because of that? Or am I actually just, you know, having a good day today? The other diagnosis that I think would be like complex PTSD from childhood sexual abuse started around the time that I was six and stopped when I was around like 12 or 13. It was uh, perpetuated by my older sister when we were kids. It probably started out as maybe playing doctor or something like that and eventually just turned into, like, her coercing me into it and manipulating me and um, she had, like, this psychological control over me and, I mean, I don't want to, like, compare it to this, but I always thought of it as, like, Stockholm Syndrome growing up because... Like, she was my idol. I just, I wanted to be just like her, but I also, like, hated her, and I was terrified of her. But I just saw her as, like, she's in control, and she's so powerful. And um, she was able to just keep me silent about it for so long and complicit. Around the time that I was 15, when I was in rehab... I was reading this book, um, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and and something similar happens with his aunt. It, like, just set off like a memory for me, and I made that connection where it was like, I, like, had known it had happened, but every single time it came up in my brain, it was like, you know, no, push it aside. That did not happen. And if it did happen, it didn't happen in the way that you're thinking that it did. Once I read that, it was just kind of, like, undeniable. And I don't know, I just kind of felt like that was my opportunity to say something to my therapist. He knew that something was up because I was showing very clear signs of, like, somebody who had been abused. I just was so, like, unwilling to actually talk about what was wrong. So he was kind of trying to just get me to be open with him about it. And I was just like, all right. And I told him he, you know, he was a mandated reporter. He had to report it to CPS because I was still a minor. She was now no longer a minor, and she was still living with us. I had begged him not to. I didn't even want him telling my mom. I just wanted, I was hoping that I could just privately work that out with my therapist and I would never have to tell my family and that maybe if I worked it out with my therapist, I could stand to be around my sister. He reported it and he told my mom that night. And, um, I guess something similar happened with my sister and my stepbrother. She had done the exact same thing to him when I was, like, 11 or 12, they kicked him out, and I never knew why. I guess I was just, like, always under the understanding that, like, he, went, he wanted to go live with his mom. like He wanted to live with his biological mom. But I later found out that they kicked him out because they blamed him for it. Once we found all of that out, it was, like, just immediate rift in the family. I felt like I was being blamed for being a victim in a situation and that, like, if I had just not said anything, then, you know, they would all be fine, but I would be li- living in pain. And I still was at that time, but I I couldn't stand to be around her after that. I felt guilty about it, and um, my mom so many times was just like, when are you going to forgive her? Probably, like, way soon after it even, you know, it ha- happened, too. She was just like, well, you know, when are you going to forgive her? It completely ripped apart the family. Like, my parent, my mom, and stepdad, they still beef over it to this day. Still, it is an issue that gets brought up, and they fight over it and bring me into the middle of it. And it's just not something that they ever sought out professional help on. That was up to me. I worked it out in therapy and they just wanted me to to get on with it and get over it. I definitely didn't have a sexual education, never had a sex talk. Um, I think I learned most of that from people saying things at school and things that my older siblings were saying. If you are going to absolutely not talk about something or address something with a child, like, they're going to be so much more interested in finding out the truth about that topic. When you don't have those conversations with your children at a young age, I think it just sets them up for failure. I and mean, you can't identify, like, what something is. Like, if someone's touching you in an appropriate way and you can't identify that as inappropriate, like, you know, what are you going to... do you do then if you're just you're gasoline to believe that like all of that is okay and i think that that allows for predators to more easily take advantage of children and then i think when you have sexual situations exposed to a child at a really young age not only does that alter their sexual experiences going forward But it gives you this idea, the completely wrong idea, about what consent is and, like, what what any of that is. Because to me, that wasn't sex to me. Like, that's not how I thought about it. Like, I thought about it as this weird secret that I had to, for some reason, keep with my sister. And once I started getting older and people would talk about sex and they would talk about it in, like, similar ways of, like in a woman's experience, that, like, you don't really enjoy it, you don't make the first move, it is perpetuated on you and you are just there to accept it, and that, like, you just kind of grin and bear it sometimes. Once I started having, like, that pushed on me about my experiences with, like, guys my age, then then I think it really started to, like, fuck with me and, like, make me feel feel like I was being transported back into that time and I would have the same like, bodily reactions and I would shake a lot and get physically ill. Your body holds on to trauma for like a very long time. And so the first time that I had ever had a sexual experience with a boy, I got so sick I threw up and I was crying and shaking. And it was like What is wrong with you? And, uh, you know, I I couldn't have verbalized that back then. I didn't know, like, what was happening. I just thought that I didn't like it. When I was 20, my sister had a baby. And that was really hard for me to realize and come to terms with that she was now going to be a mother of a little girl. It bothered me a lot. During that time, my grandma died, the one that was my dad's mom that I felt comfortable being around him with, that I had a relationship with. And it brought us, like, it forced us to be back together in, like, the same spot, me, my dad, and my sister. I just... I don't know, I was just like, this just isn't something that, like, I can carry as a burden anymore, and nobody wants to take responsibility. My sister never took, she never, you know, she will deny it to this day and call me a liar, and sometimes I wonder if my mom believes her, and that's what all the beef is about. Is like, nobody wants to outright tell me they think I'm lying, but I sometimes wonder if they do. And they have questioned me before of, like, well, maybe you just don't remember things right, and you didn't say anything for so long. You know, typical things that people tell people who've taken a while to come out about something. The behavior isn't, like, what I would see as, like, supportive to somebody who had been through something like that. My stepdad has expressed sympathy over it, He also blames himself because they both, you know, if the blame's not on me, it's on my stepbrother. That's for sure. It's not on my sister. Even though me and my stepbrother have talked privately and have basically fact-checked each other's memories, and we do have certain same core memories. It's such a taboo topic. Nobody wants to talk about it. And I get that. I get that it's you know it's it's taboo. It's not something that like a lot of people maybe a lot of people have been through it, and it's just no one's talking about it. I think it is something that like happens with blended families, and uh, I just think it's really easy for them to put that on my brother because I think my mom kind of treated him as an outcast a little bit, and she he wasn't her son, and I think that she was a little estranged from him emotionally in that way, and so it's really easy for her to just be like, well, he's a pervert. Then in my case, it's like, well, she was a child too. Well, I was a child. You know, we were all children. It's just the point is is that she has the repetitive behavior of this. So, but that's just not something we don't see eye to eye that way. And I've given up, like, trying to explain to them, like, why she's in the wrong I've just, like, I've stepped down from being, like, the family therapist over something that happened to me. For the longest time, I felt like I was, like, walking everyone through my trauma and how to take my trauma and how to deal with it, that I wasn't even, like, doing that with myself and, like, asking myself, like, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to live with this? I do have someone in my family. One of my cousins and her mom are really supportive of me because they took me in for a period of time when my sister wasn't living at home and around the time i was like 16 or 17 my mom would ask me to leave sometimes so my sister could stay there or celebrate holidays there and i remember getting kicked out on like christmas and just going to my cousin's house and spending time with her and her mom and her family I had told them what had happened because I I, I was crying and they were were asking why. And I told them everything. And to this day, if my mom um, is around them and she brings up my sister, my cousin will text me. And she's like, gross, your mom's talking about your sister again. (laughs) You know, they try to be supportive with me about it. And it's just nice that, like, no one else really in the extended family knows. It's nice that there's, like, at least some people who are like, yeah, you know, she was in the wrong in that situation, and, like, I've got your back. I don't really go home. Like, I don't visit home. I don't like to. Um, Everybody's always asking me when I'm going to visit and when I'm going to come out for Christmas, and I haven't gone since 2016, maybe. Yeah, I just, uh, it's better for my mental health, I think, for me to just stay away from all of that. Every single time I do go home, it's brought up. So I kind of just avoid it, and maybe when I'm a little bit older, it'll be easier. I keep in touch with the people that aren't problematic, like, and I don't really care to keep in touch with the people who are, you know, going to cause me grief or start a fight with me or invalidate anything I've gone through. It's well known in my family that I've had mental health struggles. And for the longest time, I was just that one. I was like, oh, yeah, she's the she's the crazy one in the family. As we've all gotten older, um, I think everybody else is also realizing they, too, struggle with, with mental illness. And it's not just me. So I do kind of find a little bit of comfort in that. It is validating now to know, like, yeah, you know, where do you think I got it from? It's like, we—it's genetic. We all have it. Like, we, there's intergenerational trauma here, and it's not just me that has issues. And so sometimes people will reach out to me for that. Like, I had an aunt reach out to me, a sixty-year-old aunt. I know you've dealt with this before, and I'm going through something. Like, I'm having suicidal thoughts, and I just need someone to talk to, and maybe we could check in and. Like, really shocked to get that kind of message from somebody who, you know, had referred to my time in rehab as being in the loony bin multiple times and, you know, told my mom that she needed to have me committed to an asylum. I don't know what it is with my sister. I don't know her deal. Like, she's diagnosed narcissist. I don't know why that was an action for her, though. And the reason we don't know why is because she's never admitted to it. But if there were a bigger conversation about, like, why it's not okay to do those things and holding people accountable when they do those, do those things, then, I don't know, maybe people would have more peace about it. And it wouldn't be so hush-hush behind closed doors, like, we don't talk about that family secret you do something wrong if you hurt someone in that kind of way, like, you need to be held accountable for it. And if you're that young of a child, then your parents need to be held accountable for it because there was there was no, like, conversation of consent growing up. There was no, like, people shouldn't touch you there and you shouldn't touch other people there. That wasn't something that was, I think, like, even something that my parents thought they needed to say to us. And I just think that more people should realize that that could just easily happen to you.